And so sometimes people say, when you find your purpose, everything's easy. I think sometimes when you find your purpose, life gets more challenging and you then have to clear away everything that's not in alignment with that so that you can really align with your purpose. And I think we're put through challenges and tests to develop us so that we can really become the person who is really capable of fulfilling. Today's guest, Coot Blackson, was born in Ghana at a time where there was tremendous political upheaval in the country. And his father also at the time was fairly public and high level. And when all this turmoil began, it became clear that they would be targeted. So they left the country. His father actually had already been in London. And um, not too long after, him and his mom were sort of smuggled out, uh, where he then spent uh, most of his growing up years in London. He was growing up in a way that is very foreign to so many of us. His dad was a a spiritual leader and the head of a church with 5,000 congregants and some 300 other churches or so in back in Ghana. And he got brought up in a tradition that he was expected to step into. But in his early teens, he made the decision not to. And what unfolded from that decision, what led to it and his experiences from Ghana to London to his journey after that, is where we go in today's conversation. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. The show is sponsored by meditation app 10% Happier. So the app, it comes with courses that they teach you how to stress better, deal with difficult emotions, and build healthier habits. I love that the material is entertaining and relatable. The host, New York Times bestselling author Dan Harris, he's funny, he's real, he's vulnerable, and he's teamed up with some of the world's best meditation teachers to show you how meditation helps kind of smooth out some of life's wrinkles using cutting edge science and hard won experience to demonstrate the tangible benefits that meditation can have. And listeners of Good Life Project get 40% off. Just go to 10percent.com slash goodlife. That's 10% all spelled out, T-E-N-P-E-R-C-E-N-T dot com slash goodlife. And if you aren't ready to meditate just yet, but are curious how smart, ambitious people use meditation and benefit from it, well then check out the 10% Happier podcast. Either way, you can find it all at 10percent.com slash goodlife. So good to be hanging out with yeah, you today. Man. I've been a fan of your podcast. Ah, uh, thanks. I'm really, really interested in, in you and your story. I, was, I have too many questions for one conversation, so we'll see how far Let's we get go, today. Man. Let's do it. Um, you you were born in Ghana, but you came up in uh, London. But I want to start in Ghana because um, it seems like you weren't actually there for very long. And I actually want to start with with your parents sure. because you you share an interesting story about them. About so tell me about them. Yeah, my parents. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I was born in Ghana. My father's from Ghana, my mother's Japanese, I grew up in London, and uh, you know, my first memories were literally a couple of things. I always felt a deep calling to serve people, deep calling to serve humanity. It was just this burning desire, I didn't understand where it came from, you know? And I didn't exactly know what it would look like, but uh, my first memories were really with my father. And I remember being a a chubby kid in Ghana, West Africa, I was lost in the crowd, probably around seven-ish, or six, seven. And I, I literally saw this crippled woman crawling on the floor 
and there she was crawling and I was lost in the crowd and my father was way up and she, literally she picks up the sand that he walks on, wipes on. I'm watching this happening and she picks up the sand, he walks on, wipes on her face and stands up. So that was one of the most um, impactful memories of my father. This was in Ghana. This was in Ghana, West Africa. And so, you know, the crowd erupted. So week after week, I grew up seeing this man who was, in my mind, my father, but very iconic for a lot of people. He'd look at a woman in a wheelchair and say, why are you in the wheelchair? You're not sick. Stand up. And she would, a man or woman would say, but I'm not well. I'm sick. I've been crippled for five years, 10 years. And he would say, you're not sick. Do you believe? Yes, I believe. Well, if you believe, why are you sitting in the wheelchair? But um, do you believe, you know, in, in the Bible, in God, in the Word, whatever, what, you know, whatever he would say. And eventually, five, ten minutes later, the person would stand up or throw away their crutches or whatever miracle would occur. So this was, uh, you know, some of my first memories with my father and my mother was you know, the, Japanese. So, so give us context here. So, you're, so, so your father at, at that time, yeah. t- tell me more about him. Yeah, what, he was, what, what was he seen as? What did he do? He, was, uh, he built 300 churches in Ghana, West Africa. Uh, so he was considered like a miracle man. You know, I don't know if you're familiar with the Indian culture, mm-hmm. but uh, like a Sai Baba, mm-hmm. um, an African Siddha, you know, like a Muktananda, I mean, f- man filled with energy. So when he was 15, uh, he had a conversion to Orthodox Christianity and literally fell down on the street. The light hit him and he gave his life to, to, to God and he started healing people. He, I guess he was very simple, uneducated, very poor in, in the, from the from the countryside, the bush, so mm-hmm. to speak, in, in Ghana. And uh, he, his my mentality was, well, if Jesus did this, and it's in the Bible, and the Bible says, the things I do, you can do, and even more, then I figured, why not me? And he just started putting his hands on people as a 15-year-old kid, and people started getting healed. And he didn't have any idea why. He had no training, just stuff started happening. And then before you knew it, the word spread, and there were three, four, five, six hundred people coming to his mother's home. His mother said, this isn't going to work. You need to figure something out. And that's when he started his church, and one grew to two, to three, to four, to about 200, 250, 300 at its height. Mm. And he probably still has a couple of hundred churches. So he was, uh, you know, he... My father was um, a unique guy. He was the spiritual teacher to two or three presidents. One of the presidents I write about in my book is called Ignatius Kutu Achampong. This was my godfather. And the first time my father met this guy, this is what also sort of blew my father up, was when the guy was in his probably late 20s, came to my father. His mother was a member in my father's church. And my father looked, laid eyes on him, had a vision, said, you're going to be president of Ghana. The guy said, you are crazy. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm cleaning the toilets for the you know generals. I don't know how many years later, but he ended up being the president. And so mm. when he became president, as an honor, said, I want your son to have my name. And that's how I got pretty much his name. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Ghana went through some uh, interesting times though, when you were pretty young. <laughs> Intense. Yeah. That's why we had to leave. Yeah. You know, because... So, uh, so for those that kind of don't know that history, yeah. share a little bit. I mean, the, the little that I know, because I left very early, you know... Uh, there was a whole coup that happened. Rawlings came in. I was probably about three, four years old. Rawlings came in and uh, pretty much started uh, taking over the country. Ended up taking a champong who was my godfather and holding him hostage. And I mean, ended up killing him, basically killed so many of the people who were part of his cabinet. And uh, because I basically overthrew the government, he felt that there was a better way. And uh, in those times, it was very old school. So my father... Her, when he heard about this, he happened to be in London. So just 
grace and couldn't come back to the country. So my mother and I were pretty much stranded in uh, Ghana for months. Imagine this Japanese woman can't speak English, barely been around foreigners, is stranded with a kid in, in, in Ghana in a foreign country. And so we had to get smuggled uh, out of Ghana to London and yeah. ended up being refugees. So it was really challenging. So the reason he couldn't come in was that it would Yeah, the reason he couldn't come in was because he was probably the most influential person in the president's life. Mm. Uh, he was his mentor, his teacher, his confidant. I mean, the only person the president would allow to be alone with him uh, without any security. I mean, this was the guy who, you know, when the president was in his late 20s, made, made a prediction. And, and so the president would basically visit my father you know, every few weeks, every yeah. month for counsel and guidance and what have you. So they were, they were very, very, very close. Yeah. yeah. When this all happened and he was in London, was, was your dad essentially being hunted at that point? Or? Well, my, if my father came back to Ghana, he would have been killed. Yeah. 100%. Right. Without, I mean, everybody knew that my father was the spiritual advisor and confident to the president. So, yeah. I mean, that was, guaranteed, that was guaranteed. So how old were you when this was all I was happened? probably around four-ish in right. that zone you know it was young three and a half I don't honestly I don't remember yeah that's my it. curiosity like yeah. you know this from it, it being but, cold but, my, but I was just in London and I had a conversation with my mother and yeah. she was telling me you know how, how I didn't realize how, how actually intense and scary it was for this Japanese woman you know who's in this crazy foreign country speaks no English speaks no Ghanaian her husband who you know, my father speaks no Japanese. She speaks no English. They can barely speak. So now her husband, who she's just married, is, you know, a few years ago, is stuck in London. She has no one, basically. I mean, there's, there's people around, but she doesn't really have anyone. So she was telling me how sh she would hear reports and hear gunshots. And, 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 you know, in the newspaper, there were people literally being hanged in the middle of the street, made an example of. And it was really scary yeah, for her. Because I got to imagine for her, she's probably thinking, well... If they're, you know, if he's not safe, you know, yeah. and he's not here, yeah. then we can't be safe either, yeah. you know, because you're part of the lineage. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, I had a conversation with her and I really have to say I was, re I'm really touched by her courage and uh, her, her fearlessness, because when I spoke to her, there was very little fear hmm. in her when she spoke about it. When she spoke about it to me, all that was present for her was, how do I take care of my son? If I don't see my husband again, what do I need to do to take care of my son? And this woman, Japanese woman, went and, got, and applied for a job in a kindergarten, figuring out if my, if my husband can't come back to the country, he's a refugee, what do I do? And so all I heard was a total focus on on her son, on unconditional loving, on truly being selfless, which mm. was really, uh, for me, very inspiring and very touching. Yeah, but eventually, I guess not too long after that, then you ended, you did end up, uh, both of you ended up sort of being smuggled out. Yeah, we ended up being kind of smuggled out, you know, in secret, back to, to London, and right. we were refugees, literally refugees. We came in a refugee visa, and we were refugees for, I think, it, we, my, we couldn't go back for about five, six years. Mm. It might have been seven years. My father couldn't go back, and then he was pardoned, you know, with, with the help of the king of Ghana, who was close to who spoke to the president and they made everything okay yeah what was happening to uh you know these hundreds of churches and congregants while you guys were in london i guess my father was running it you know remotely no with, kidding with, at that time at that time <laughs> you know phone calls here phone calls there and 
So the institution still stayed in place. It was. It was. It was continuing. Huh. Yeah, it continued. Yeah, it was moving. I mean, it was. It was strong. I mean, I remember in its height, hundreds of thousands of people. Mm. I mean, literally was human. Hum- I mean. As a kid, I couldn't walk down the street without someone knowing who my father was. Mm. Uh, I mean, it was massive. I mean, yeah. I'd go out on the street with my father, and people would literally hundreds of people would come at a time. So it was, it was, it was. Quite, you know, I didn't think anything of it. Now I look back, and right. I thought, it's just your reality. It's just my reality, there. and I look back and think, well, okay, well, that was what it was. You know. Yeah. So When did you first go back to Ghana? Um, probably around seven years old. It was probably, you know, we left when I was about three-ish, three and a half. So it's probably going to be around seven, eight in that zone. Yeah. I think it, well, whenever my father w- was able to go back is when I went back right. with him. So, so did you guys move back there or were you no, going back and forth no, no, between no, no. London? We, we and, stayed in London. Okay. Yeah. So, st- you, so you would go back just to kind of... I'd go back go. every, you know, every yeah. few years with him and, you know, he continued his churches there and his church in London exploded. Yeah. Um, you know, 5,000 people, you know, 5,000 people every Sunday coming to his church. How did he so, do that? <laughs> what, well, what, what, was, what, what does yeah. a miracle man do? You know, obviously, he's not going to uh, work in 7-Eleven and uh, sell cars. So what started happening was, you know, the African community in London heard about my father. Uh, okay. They knew him and one by one, people started showing up and healing start happening one of the you know one of the stories i heard was there was a woman from jamaica and she came and she literally was in she was the woman in the wheelchair mm. one of the first stories i heard and you know he, he was the one who told her stand up and she stood up and and then her house i was to get a little out there but her house was cursed so whenever she would walk into her own house uh she would feel the, like literally knives cutting her so my father took her to her house and said let me go into the house said a prayer of some sort and I uh, said, go into your house. And so she walks into her house after years of not being able to live in her house. She had to live with her daughter and nothing happened. And so she basically said, I want to invite you to stay in this house with me and my family. And that kind of gave us a foundation as well. Yeah. So, so when you're coming up largely in London, then were you going to public school? Like what was, <laughs> what was your education? Yeah, I was. Uh, from what I remember, I was. I went to public. I went to kindergarten. Right. I went to public school. Uh, so, because you're not the average kid in that school. Yeah. So, how do you tell me about that? <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I lived two lives. You know, there was a deeper reality that I was in touch with because I was going to church, seeing these miracles. That was normal for me. I'd go to school. I'd tell my friends and teachers about it. They thought I was cr- literally, I was insane. Right. It's like these two Until one day, one of my teachers came to church, saw 5,000 people going crazy and saw miracles happening. And then she thought, okay, he's not making stuff up. And that was a turning point. Uh, but I, you know, honestly, I always felt a little different. Uh, I I always felt there was a part of me that I couldn't really share. There was Mm. a part of me that I couldn't, that my friends didn't really understand. I mean, I was popular in school. I played soccer and I, you know, did cricket and sports and tennis and what have you. But there was a whole, I mean, at age 10, I was um, listening to Tony Robbins tapes, Mm. uh, the personal power tapes. You know, age eight, I was reading Shakti Gawain and and, uh, Marianne Williamson and Louis Hay. And I was obsessed with trying to understand who are we and why we're here and what's the purpose of life. So I have these two worlds, one in a reality, in a in, in a world that I couldn't share with my friends, and a whole other world where it was everything on the surface was fun and games and you know happy on one level. And, you know, I, I was I'd go to school age ten, eleven. On the train back, I would be uh, reading books. You know, reading yeah. Deepak Chopra books. So this was this was my 
you know, personal growth and self-help and spirituality for me has been a passion. It's been in my blood. You know, it's been, I, I do my homework so I could go read books for three, four yeah. hours a night. That but was you're essentially life. living, it's like you're living two lives. I was living two lives, completely yeah. living two lives. There, there was a whole domain of my existence that my friends had zero idea about. Because when I was age eight, I started to preach in my father's churches mm. you know my father one day i was a chubby kid only interested in soccer threw me up on stage and said my son's gonna give the sermon <laughs> and uh i had no idea what i was doing no i no plan what does an eight-year-old kid plan and all of a sudden that's when i think something opened up for me when when i was on stage i don't remember what i was said but it was like a, a download happened like a chat it was like being a channel and uh, I mean, how do you explain that to your friends? You know, how do you exp how do you go to school the next day and say, "Oh, I spoke in front of five thousand people, and this is what occurred." So I couldn't talk about certain things. So on one level, it was very lonely, and on one level, I felt very different, and on one level, I felt very weird. You know, so it was it was it was challenging. I'm not going to deny it. On one level, yeah. yeah. Um, and how do you explain that to yourself also? Because you know that that feeling of okay, I've just been put on stage and something is moving through me you yeah. know, at a very young age how, besides how do i explain that to my friends how do you actually what like what's your, how do you explain that to yourself at, at you know okay so what's happening to me right now i'll be honest man i i, I didn't think about it hmm. i wish i could make up some elaborate you know thing that <laughs> occurred but i didn't think about it for me whenever i would get on stage as a young boy, and it still happens to me kind of even now as well, I wasn't there. The first time was the first time when I just got on stage, my father said, speak, and something happened. Something spoke through me, and I wasn't there. So on some level, even now, people say, oh, you're a great speaker, and I can't really take credit for it. I mean, yes, it's me, and I've developed my craft, but something happens, and and, and so... I didn't really think about it very much. I would just show up and let think, let whatever needed to, to move through me, move through me. And I didn't give it much thought, you know. Yeah. It was also very humbling because I realized that there was something bigger than myself moving me. And I didn't really know at that age what it was, what it wasn't. God, intelligence, consciousness, whatever label we wanted. I knew it was something, you know. Did, did you question it at all or did you just accept it? I think at that age, I accepted it. Yeah. Yeah. Was there, did there come a time where you started to question or, or have you just kind of said this, this is, you know, just sort of fully embraced whatever this thing is in whatever form it's in? Oh, man. I never questioned what was moving through me. What I questioned, see, when I was 14, my father wanted me to become a minister. Right. And that's when he basically announced to the congregation, my son's going to be ordained as a minister. He's going to take over my church. He's going to be the, the next guy. Everyone's happy. And that never felt that the structure of the delivery of this energy of the gift that was moving through me is what I questioned. Mm. So the church, the organization, you know, and even though my dad was a very spiritual, kind of enlightened, you know, mystic Christian person, wasn't an old school person at this point, I, I, I started questioning the, the form and the organization of it. And I knew that that the structure of the church and religion was not for me. So that's why I started questioning. But I never, never really questioned the connection to the divine, the connection to source, the connection to God. That was always... That was always my direct experience, you know. That was something that no one 
taught me or wasn't from a book. It was just the direct connection and it was my own experience. So, you know, how can I argue really with my, at least for me, with my own experience? Yeah. So when you started to question that sort of the, the, the delivery structure yeah. around it, yeah. what was what was coming up? Like what was the conversation in your head? What did you? I knew that it wasn't right for me. What wasn't right about it? I'll never forget the day I was about 14 and I was on stage, 5,000 people in the audience. My mother's on the other side. And my father and I, we didn't talk a whole lot. He was very old school, you know, old school African. And he said, my son's taking over the church and, I, and he's the next guy. I made this big announcement and I looked over at my mother and she looked over at me. We were very close. And I just shook my head like, well, no one really discussed this with me. How, how did this happen? So on one level, looking back, I kind of felt a little betrayed uh, by my father because there was no conversation. But intuitively in my gut, there was a deep knowing of my truth that this is not in alignment. And I can't tell you why or why not. I just knew it wasn't, this wasn't my path. I went along with it and I didn't say anything to my father because I didn't, I didn't know any other path. I didn't know any other way to deliver the information. I didn't know any other way to speak truth, to inspire people. This was all I knew. So I went along with it because I didn't want to lose his love. You know, I didn't want, I was terrified. I didn't want to rock the boat. I didn't want to upset people. I didn't want to let people down. I didn't want to disappoint anyone. I didn't want to be abandoned. So I, I didn't say anything. Yeah, and you're 14 years old then. Also, exactly. So it's like you're not necessarily equipped with the, yeah. the skills to yeah. say, sorry. But, but I knew. Yeah. Honestly, I knew in my gut that this wasn't my truth. Yeah. I, I knew it and I knew I, w I wasn't equipped, but I also knew I was not. I was denying my truth. Yeah. At some point you told your dad. So what was... what Took me four years. Right. And what, what happened that made you say, okay, it's time? Well... I started reading a lot of books. Number one, I started seeing, wow, maybe there's a whole different way of delivering this information. Maybe there's a whole uh, another approach. These people weren't ministers. They didn't have churches. So what if I did it through, you know, in, in seminars and hotel rooms? Wow, there's there's a whole new America's the place to do this thing. You know, this is a there's a whole new career I could make of sharing inspiration. So that was one epiphany. Then I read a book by a man called J. Krishnamurti. Mm. read a few of his books, and I don't remember which book, but I remember reading about his life and really relating to some of his life. He was being groomed to take over you know, the Theosophy organization. Right. And I think when he was around 28, 29, literally had his own epiphany, left everything behind, talked about how the free mind is not a conditioned mind, a Buddhist mind, a Jewish mind is just a free. And when I read that, I felt... A moment of deep truth i felt like something inside of me was being shaken and i knew i was probably about 15 16 i knew what i had to do in that moment uh i didn't do it because i was terrified but i could not lie to myself that i didn't know what was true i felt the truth and i felt it shake me and i didn't have the courage to speak up or say anything so what occurred for me was from 14 to 18, slowly the truth of my soul started to burn even more. And, you know, the truth burns. And uh, I just sat with the truth and the fire of the truth kept burning and burning and burning and burning. And when I turned 17, 18 is when I also had to make some decisions, whether do I continue with university or what, what am I going to do with my life? Mm -hmm. So 
it reached a, a showdown moment. And, with uh, your dad, with my father, because yeah. either I was going to take over the church or I was going to go to university, I, I couldn't just do nothing. Right. So, so, did your mom know that this moment was coming? Uh, I had a conversation with my mother, yeah. and I told her it was a little scary, but I told her the truth. I told her everything. I said, "I don't feel I'm meant to take over the church. I'm scared. I'm terrified, but this is my truth, and I'm not going to go to university." And she, like a lot of mothers, was unconditional and loving and said, I love you. If this is what you want and this is what you feel, I'll support you. You're going to have to tell your dad. And uh, so, I mean, months later is when I finally mustered up the courage to tell my father uh, the truth. And I was, honestly, I was terrified. Yeah. So what happened? Take me into that conversation. Um, huh. I had made up in my mind... Uh, at least my truth was that I would be outcast, that we would never speak for the rest of my life, that um, I'd be outcast from the community. But I knew what I had to do because I knew if I followed his path for my life, his vision for my life, I might be successful by everyone else's standards and build a church and be the next great whatever. But if I didn't have myself, then what do I have? You know, mm -hmm. that's just a failure in a sense. So I remember one day I made peace with my own truth. And it was, I remember crying, it was, it was deeply scary. And what I had to do was fully release my father. You know, fully like let him go. My relationship with him is over. I mean, it might sound dramatic, but for an 18 year old kid, it was 17, it was a big deal. Like, this is it. So I had to make peace with that. And, I've, and I remember making peace with, I will not have a relationship with my father again. And once that occurred is when I had the conversation. I remember one Sunday after church, walking up the stairs. We lived in a tiny, tiny, I mean, my, my bedroom was about this size, by mm -hmm. the way. So I walked out my tiny bedroom and I walked up the stairs. Uh, it was probably about 7 p.m. at night. Ter I mean, shaking. You know, sometimes it's, sometimes it's easier I think to not know the truth, to not acknowledge the truth, sure. because then you don't have to do anything about it, you exactly. know, but uh, which is, I think, why we so often deny the truth. We distract ourselves from the truth. We pretend, you know, we play this game of confusion. I don't know, but I knew, man, and the truth yeah. was just like a fire in my soul. So I walked up the stairs and I saw, see my dad lying down after, after church and, you know, it was long services. Services were like five, six hours on a Sunday. And I said, Dad, I have something to tell you. And you don't understand. My dad is not the type of person you speak to, right? So this was like confronting the dragon. So I walk up to my father and say, I have something to tell you. And he says, okay, what? Sure, he's going to scream at me. And I, and I say, you know, I don't feel I'm meant to take over your, the, the churches. And uh, I just wanted to tell you, talk to you about that. And he said, uh, all he said was, are you sure? And I said, uh, yeah, I don't think I'm, you know, it was, ter you got, it was terrifying for me. Yes. Because I felt like I was killing my father. Mm. That's how it felt. I felt like I was not only letting him down. I was the only son. So there was no one else. So I felt a tremendous amount of pressure. And I love my dad, even though we weren't, you know, so close on a, on a personal level. He said, are you sure? I said, yeah, I'm sure. And I, f I just felt his heart sink. And I felt like that's it. And he asked me again, are you sure? And it was a moment, you know, it was like time stopped. And it was a moment of choice. Like I could say, well, I'm not, I'm sure. And I realized it was like something went, you know, it's like you throw a book down and something goes thump. 
and there's no turning back after that moment. And he said, okay. And that was it. And I'm thinking, you know, it would have been easy if he just screamed at me and said something and threw some books around. That was it. And I walked downstairs trembling and I knew my life would never be the same again. And my father and I barely spoke for about two years after that. Um, I mean, he was there, he was gone a lot. So it's not like I saw him all the time, but we, it, was, it was pretty chilly. We didn't speak. It was very, very difficult. Have you ever spoken about that since then? You know, it's funny. I don't know if we've directly spoken about that moment. Nah. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've gotten a lot closer. And, and I think there's a deep respect. And, you know, I feel his love. I feel his, on one level, uh, pride of you know what i've achieved and where i'm going and what i'm doing i don't think we've ever spoken about that moment of that of that like what happened for you dad in that conversation no. so it, it would be interesting to, to kind of maybe re, re, revisit that with him at yeah. that point but so, i remember feeling when i went back to my room honestly i remember feeling deeply alone and deeply like oh shit what did i do Good Life Project is supported by HubSpot. Complex enterprise software, it shouldn't get in the way of launching your next campaign. That is why HubSpot built the new Marketing Hub Enterprise. So say goodbye to countless hours of software management. Their platform offers the power and flexibility that scaling companies need to succeed with the ease of use that you expect. So you match every customer interaction to revenue, use AI to test and optimize, and create more personalized experiences. Plus, you can integrate HubSpot with hundreds of other tools and apps. So stop managing your outdated and overly complex software and start creating remarkable customer experiences. Learn more about the new features in Marketing Hub Enterprise at hubspot.com slash Wondery. That's hubspot.com slash Wondery. Good Life Project is supported by Signature Hardware. So if you're looking for the perfect item to take your kitchen or bathroom or house up a notch, head over to SignatureHardware.com slash GoodLife. They offer an incredibly wide variety of pieces for every room in your house with more than 20 years experience supplying vanity, sinks, tubs, hardware, plus all the classics, latest styles, and they're in sync with all the trending colors and design touches. And they also have amazing customer service to help guide you through the process. So you'll never feel lost or intimidated. Gotta love a company that really stands behind what they offer. Stephanie and I actually picked out a collection of eight furnishings that we love. They're unique and are 100% our style, so maybe you'll like them too. And you can see for yourself at SignatureHardware.com slash GoodLife. You'll be amazed at the variety and the quality. So visit SignatureHardware.com slash GoodLife to find your style today. That's SignatureHardware.com slash GoodLife. Or just click the link in the show notes now. Real life is an all is perfect, but with signature hardware, it is beautiful. You know, sometimes people say, well, when you find your purpose, the universe opens up, everything is spontaneously fulfilling of your desires, the unicorns. It's sometimes, I think when you, when you feel, because I felt my purpose, I knew I was meant to come to America. I felt I was meant to go into this field of personal growth and give seminars. I mean, it know the exact form, but I felt that from when I was 14, 15, 16, I knew this is mm. what I wanted to do. And so sometimes people say, when you find your purpose, everything's easy. I think sometimes when you find your purpose, life gets more challenging and you then have to clear away 
everything that's not in alignment with that so that you can really align with your purpose. And I think we're put through challenges and tests to develop us so that we can really become the person who is really capable of fulfilling. Yeah, it's funny. I agree. I think one of the big mythologies in sort of self-help, personal growth, um, spirituality is that the moment you start living your truth, you know, like everything rises up and the path becomes clear and there's a sense of grace and ease and you just know it's right. And I don't know. I've I've met the occasional person where that's been the experience, but the vast majority of folks who I know who like are, you know, can say in some way, shape or form, they've found that they've been through some level of hell. (laughs) For me, at least at that age, it was hell because I was in this abyss of, Oh my God! What do I do? I have no. I have no money. I have no family support. I have no support from my father. I'm now pretty much outcast of my community. I'm not going to university, and I feel this burning desire to go to America. You know, and I feel my destiny is dependent on me being in America because that's where the personal growth field is. And now I'm stuck in this tiny, you know, room in Peckham with nothing. Like literally, I I made a prayer. I said, God, what do I do? And I never forget that evening. I said, God, you've given me this vision. You've given me this, this dream, this vision. You've given it to me, so fulfill it. And it was a deep prayer from the depth of my soul. And, uh, you know, as a kid, I would, I would, you know, my, my room was literally the size of the studio and I would sneak out. But by, by the way, for those listening, the studio is not large. <laughs> it's not, what is it? Five, five, I don't know. Yeah, it's pretty tiny. It's tiny. Yeah. My, I had a bed that was literally this right. size. And I, I mean, so, so I felt the bigness of my dreams, you know, and the smallness of my circumstance. And it was so frustrating. So what I would do was I would sneak out to, because the church was literally next door attached to, to, to the apartment. So I would sneak out the middle of the night. I was just there when this is done, I'll show you a picture. Uh, and I would sneak out to the church in the darkness around 11 p.m. And I would, as a 15, 16 year old kid, probably three, four nights a week, I would speak, like literally give seminars to the empty chairs, imagining the souls of all the people I would be inspiring at some point and, you know, laughing with them and crying with them and seeing them light up. So it was, uh, for me, it was a calling, you know, to be in this field and do right. what I'm doing. And, and so... Why not London, though? Well, I mean, London's a big place. And London's I, I, get a big, you, I get the fact that your dad was there and he's yeah. you know, like a huge community, but... Um, there was, at that time, there was nothing... Look, every author I'd read, we're talking Wayne Dyer, we're talking... Uh, Canfield, Mark Victor Hansen, Brian Tracy, Jim Rohn, Tony Robbins, Marion Williamson, Louise Hay. Go, I mean, just go down, go down the list. They all lived. Barbara DeAngelis, L.A., San Diego. They were all literally, I'd read the backs of these books. It was a world away from me, but they all lived in Beverly Hills, San Diego, Solana, all down there. So for me, this was the Mecca. A few obviously lived in Northern California, but this was the Mecca. And there was nothing going on in London. For me, Growing up in Peckham, Peckham was this literally like a, a ghetto. So that was one. I hated it. On top of that, there was no consciousness movement. You couldn't really go into a bookstore and find very many spiritual books. Like in, in the U.S., you can go to Barnes & Noble and find a whole section. There's nothing like – I mean, maybe now it's a bit more. Now there's a bit more yoga. But, you know, 18 years ago, 19 years ago, 20 – there was nothing. Yeah. So this is where it was at. I'm curious also, do you feel like any of that was also – um, feeling like you needed to step out from under the the geographic even shadow of yeah, your father. You know, you know what? It wasn't conscious. Like, oh, I need to get away yeah. 
from the proximity of my father, but looking back as my soul's journey, looking back at my soul's journey, I see that the greatest, most accelerated way to evolve my soul was partly the geographic space yeah. because that gave me the room to grow and become my own man and make my own mistakes and not have the energy of my father right and my mother you know right there and to yeah. disconnect from them and that was really impactful looking Cause back. I, yeah because i think it's so interesting because I, I i've sat down with so many people who have sort of made a huge geographical move yeah. um and one of the questions that always comes up for me is are you running to or are you running from? Yeah. Or is it some blend of both of those, you know? Um, yes. Yeah, so, so I think it was honestly yeah. with, without thinking. I knew I had to go. Yeah. And I knew my soul was calling. I knew it for sure. And it was probably a blend of running from and running to. Yeah. It was a blend of all. Yeah, so yeah. you end up in, in L.A. after that, right? Well, but you yeah. didn't, did you go directly? Cause you no, know, what, what happened for me was there I am sitting in my room wondering how the hell am I going to do this with no money, right. like literally no money. And that's when I feel, I felt the, the, the total support of the universe. And I really, I really feel like when we follow our truth, it may not be an easy path, but the universe does support us in some ways and we have to do our part. And so what happened for me was I ended up winning a green card in the lottery, which was, as an 18-year-old kid, 17, 18-year-old kid, was huge proof for me and, and gave me the faith to know that I was being supported and guided by a far greater intelligence than just myself. I felt the entire support of the universe because I didn't know how I was going to make it happen. And I was in the library of my school as a 17-year-old kid, and I was meditating, saying, God, how, how the hell am I going to get to America? I feel this vision. Don't, don't leave me hanging here. I've, I've jumped off the cliff. I don't see any wings, you know? And uh, someone hands me, literally minutes later, someone hands me a magazine called The Economist. And I never read The Economist, but uh, I look at the back and I felt an intuition. Something was brewing. I look at the back of the magazine. It says American government's giving away 55,000 green cards in the green card lottery. I felt chills in my body. I felt this deep, strange, unexplainable knowing that I was going to win. I mean, chances are almost you know, non-existent. And so I entered it, applied, paid my, you know, few hundred dollars to the law firm, applied. And I was told that unless I heard back by September the 18th or the 19th, then just move on with your life. You, you haven't won. And I was sure I was going to win. And I, I kid you not, every day I'd meditate and I'd do my affirmation. This is pre-secret, right? Do my affirmations, see myself in America. I saw Bill Clinton shaking my hand, you know. <laughs> I saw a green card in my, you know, in my mind's eye and visualizing the feeling, the experience of it. The green card wasn't green, it was pink. And uh, every day I'd go to the mailbox, no letter, no notification. And sure enough, September the 18th rolls around, nothing. Feeling pretty deserted by the universe. I, I have a screaming a moment with God and uh, I pack my bags and I say I'm going to the US I guess you could call it illegally I'm going to the US because this is where I feel I'm going and I'm just I'm not coming back and I pack my bags and that night is when we get a phone call my mother picks up the phone and she says there's a there's an American guy on the other line says he wants to speak to, to Mr. Blackson I think that's you not your dad so I pick up the phone he says is Mr. You know, Kutu Blackson I said yes he goes we're the law firm that applied for you uh, we just got notified today that you have won a green card. 
and uh, I can't tell you, you know, that mm-hmm. moment of, of grace, that moment of gratitude, that moment of relief. I mean, I was crying and jumping. And then in the midst of this elation, I hear this, I feel, sense, hear, whatever you want to call it, this voice that says, why are you so surprised? You seem so surprised, Koo. Did you not know? Did you not trust? And changed my life, you know? And that's a moment that over the last 18 years or so that I've been in the U.S., that's a moment that whenever I've, especially in those beginning years, whenever I've doubted or questioned or it's been challenging or hard or I've wanted to give up, I remember that, I remember that moment going, you've been guided, you know? There is an intelligence guiding you. Don't forget that moment. And so it was a beautiful moment. And that's, that's really what enabled me legally to come to the U.S. with two suitcases and knowing no one in the country, $1,000, uh, one suitcase full of clothes, one suitcase full of books, tapes, you know, of the motivational, inspirational greats, legends, and just showed up in the U.S. And that began my, my journey. Yeah. yeah. When, you, um, when you first showed up, what surprised you most? When I first showed up? Yeah. I had no idea what to expect, you know. I mean, I, there was no internet, couldn't right. really do any research. And also because, so. I mean, your entire understanding of the U.S., especially L.A., which is almost like a very – it's its, its, its own wild, culture. It's a wild place. You know, it's very different than a lot of the rest of the U.S. has got to be based on media, on sort of like your illusion of what, well, what you think this place is. And then you actually touch down. I'm curious, like – all of my friends who were in London, you know, my schoolmates were like, oh, you're going to get killed because, you know, the riots mm-hmm. had happened and everyone heard how dangerous L.A. was. You're going to get no. killed. You know, oh, my God, you're yeah, going to die. Yeah, this was not a good time in it L.A. It was not back. a good time. Right. I didn't care, man. I was, I, I was, I was possessed with a calling. I was possessed. I think back now and, think, and, and, I, and, I, and I, when I think back now, I go, Wow, how did I do that, you know, in retrospect? But I was possessed and on one level fearless and relentless in the, in the innocent following of my soul. And when I showed up, I'll be honest, I showed up, I asked the, I asked the taxi the sh- the, to take me somewhere safe and cheap so where I could stay for a few weeks, takes me to Venice Beach. 20 mm-hmm. years ago, is not a great place, drops me off on the Venice Beach and... For a kid from London, it was like being in Mars. Yeah. And uh, what did I do? I cried for about two weeks. Um, Where'd you say crash in a hotel? I stayed or at something? a yeah. I, no, I stayed at a place called Venice Beach Hotel, not hot, not hotel, not motel, not hostel, hotel. Now that that's like the lowest rank of anything possible. <laughs> a room like this with like three bunk beds, and that's yeah. where you stay. So, so it, it was a shock, and I wanted to go back every single day. And the challenge is when you burn the bridge like that with your father, you can't go back. So probably if I, if I could have gone back, I might have gone back. But I didn't really have an option. Yeah. So I, I had to. I had to keep going. And uh, well, if, if you went back, I mean, in your mind, is it, is it an ego thing that you can't go back? Or is it if you go back, you're not just going back, but you're basically – you're going back to go back into both. Like you're, you now have to step back into this both. whole life you swore you were abandoning. Both. It was uh, a combination of both, and I knew it wasn't right, you know. Uh, but it was so tough. I mean, I had no money, I had no food, I was uh, struggling. I didn't. Know, I mean, I didn't know. I'm 18, and I know no one. Uh, so that's a that's a tough situation. I mean, I didn't know a single person, 
And, uh, you know, I call my mother up crying on the phone and she would be like, you can do it, you know, go, you know, you can go for it. You know, I believe in you. And that, that's what kept me going week after week. And then things started opening up. But it was, would I have gone back? I don't know because my, I look back and I, and I, and I really fe felt the, the, the pull of my soul. It was beyond me, beyond my fear, beyond my personality. My soul was pulling me. Um, in an unexplainable way, in an unexplainable direction. And so I was possessed by that, in a sense. And I think that's what kept me going, yeah. be beyond myself. I mean, I always wonder at moments like that, um, so often there's one person who sometimes signals to you that, like, stay the path that makes you, you know, if, you know, if your mom had said, you know, not I believe in you, but... I believe in you, and at the same time, if you feel like you want to come home, you can. Like yeah. whether you like that would have just changed everything. Instead of just saying I believe in you, you can do it. You know, like go for it. Yeah, I mean, I, I it's hindsight. It's, it's, it's so hard. You, you can't, you know, figure but, it out. But uh, I felt my soul guiding me. Yeah, you know, and I think that's why it's, it's so important that we we listen to our soul. Yeah. You know? um, so you, I mean, I mean, to kind of fast forward a little bit, I know you sort of, you picked up a whole bunch of different jobs and eventually yeah. um, were doing some selling work and stuff like that just to get your feet back on the ground. Um, what do you start to do to reconnect with, okay, so what I'm really here to do is to teach. I always knew that that was what I was here to do. There was never any question. I mean, I knew when I was 13, 14, reading these books, and that's why I came to the U.S., but I had to survive. I had to figure out what to do and how to pay the bills and pay the rent. So everything I did was really in service to that. You know, I got involved with multi-level marketing and, and, and the only reason I got involved with multi-level marketing, I didn't even know anyone to sell to, but I got involved with multi-level marketing was it was it was a satellite-based TV network dedicated to personal growth. Mm. So, so it just somehow connected it with, was the, connected. with the topic. So all of uh, these people, Jim Rohn, Brian Tracy, Les Brown, they were all, the motivational guys were involved in this network. So that got me, you know, proximity. And that's how I met Jim Rohn. I was on stage uh, as an 18, 19-year-old kid, and Jim Rohn saw me speak, called me over, said uh, he was very blown away. Uh, how do you get on stage as an 18, 19-year-old kid at that point? So, so I started to, as part of this, this company, I started to enroll a ton of people. I was a maniac because I was, I, was, I was passionate about personal growth, and that's what drove me. wasn't the money. wasn't anything other than I, I, I was very innocent and believed in this information because that's all I read growing up. And so when people like Jim Rohn and Les Brown and Brian Chasey were part of this, I really believed in the product. So because I didn't know anyone, how I would enroll people into my downline, so to speak, was I would dress up in the only suit I had and I'd go into, I'd go onto Wilshire Boulevard in the office buildings and I would literally all day, because I didn't know anyone, ride the elevators and uh, harass nice looking people like yourself in the elevators until you this were willing to have a conversation or signed up into my downline, you know? And, and so literally my, my, my downline kind of exploded in a mini way, you know, uh, before you knew it, from knowing no one, I had 300 people in my downline and 400. And so how does this kid in, in two months have 700 people in his downline? Obviously it wasn't all me, but the thing grew simply because I, I so believed 
in consciousness and personal growth and self-help and what have you. And so because of that, the founder of the company at the convention threw me on stage as a testimonial. Mm. And so kind of like my father did, you know, he throws me on stage and said, this kid has come from, you know, off the boat a few months ago and look at him. Everyone should listen to him. Come up on stage. And so I have opportunity to start speaking. He said, speak for a minute. And then minute grew into five minutes. And so there's 20,000 people in the in the arena in Dallas, Texas Convention Center where every there's Liz Brown in the front row. There's you know, Mark Frick Hansen. There's Jack Canfield. There's Jim. All these, my icons on the front row. And I'm... Right. And not knowing that also you had actually spent your entire life being groomed yeah. to preach, yeah. <laughs> to be on a stage and, and it talk. It was my life. Yeah. And so that was how I started connecting with some of these people. And, and that's what started to open up a whole... You know, new world and avenue yeah. quite quickly. What was it the first time you get back on stage um, as your own person for what you independently had done in front right. of a massive crowd? Because the last time you'd been on stage in any way, shape, or form was the church. Yeah. Um, so, what's that moment like when you come, when you step back up as your own person? Even though it's like, you know, it's. It, it, it's a different context profoundly, you know, it's in a, but still, just for you. You know what, in a strange way, Something I haven't thought about in a while, but it it, it was very similar to the first time hmm. where, you know, you're on stage in front of 20,000 people unprepared. Like literally, I looked around, there's just lights everywhere and the download happened again. Just stuff starts streaming out. People start crying and I remember just feeling just the same, the same energy coming through. It was, it was a really... Beautiful experience, but it also felt very fulfilling because I was speaking what I wanted to speak, you know, and I was speaking what my heart was, was sharing. Mm. And so that was, uh, was really, really touched. And for me, it was very, I mean, I can't tell you, you know, as a kid, how moving it was for someone like a Jim Rohn to, to call me over and say, you know, in, in the restaurant afterwards, say, kid, I mean, I really believe, I mean, wow, I was really moved. I mean, this is a guy who I saved up my entire year's savings and ordered the entire Jim Rohn, you know, library for $2,000 from the U.S. as a 15-year-old kid. And here he is saying, I was really moved. You have an amazing future. I mean, that was really, you know, moments like that is what I'll never forget. Yeah. Yeah. Good Life Project is supported by BetterHelp. So many of us are going through a lot right now and could really use someone to talk to and Friends and family, they can be great. But talking with someone who is truly qualified to help you feel better can be a real game changer. And BetterHelp can do just that. They're the world's largest online counseling service. You can get started no matter where you are in the world quickly. They assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. Then you schedule weekly video or phone sessions in the comfort, privacy, and safety of your own space. And they make it easy and free to change counselors if you feel you'd like to try someone else. BetterHelp also gives you access to an incredible range of expertise, which might not be available where you are. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid may be available. So visit betterhelp.com goodlife. That's better, H-E-L-P.com goodlife and join the over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. And as a special offer for Good Life Project listeners, you'll get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash goodlife. Um, so where do you go from there? Wow, where do I go from? I mean, 
Such a long road, man. Where do I go from there? I, 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 so I, we have nine hours here. One, <laughs> one, one thing I started doing was I started to track down many of the, some of the personal growth people. And I, I started going to every seminar I could save up for and afford. I started sneaking into, literally sneaking into seminars. Um, uh, I'm, 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 as, as I'm talking, I'm, I'm reimagining having memories of some of the seminars I snuck into that I shouldn't have been in. Snuck into seminars, knocked on doors of many famous authors, you know, uh, showed up at house of one of the one of these famous authors, showed up at Jack Canfield's office one time. So you're basically like a consciousness a stalker. stalker, right? I was a stalker, you know. <laughs> I mean, it was cute because I was like 19 years old. Yeah. You know, maybe not so cute now. Right, but but as, barring that, they would have been calling the cops. <laughs> I mean, I showed up at Jack Canfield's office one time and, and uh, said, I'm here to see Jack, thinking somehow he would know me, yeah. right? And, and I've been reading his book since I was 12, you know, and they're like, he's not here. I'm like, I know he's here. No, he's not after an hour, half an hour of going back and forth, Jack Canfield walks on and goes, what the hell is going on? What's this commotion? And then I just, you know, then you know, we sat down, we have a conversation, you know, he shared some things and, you know, moments like that. It was the ki- I think a lot of the time it was also the kindness of, of you know, many people along the way. Some people who I remember, some people I don't even remember. And, and I look back on success and people say, wow, could you've, you know, you've achieved a, you know, quite a few things. And I see that part of my success is a, a collection is is the impact of so many people along the way. You know, none yeah. of us are successful just on our own. How do you, as you're starting to do this, um, you're getting your feet on the ground financially. You're developing you know, like relationships. Yeah. You're and you're starting to speak again. And you've got in your head, you've got this really interesting amalgam of ideologies. So you've got you've got the mystical healing side. Yes. You know, there was sort of like the mystical Christianity side from your dad. You've got the experience of that community. You've been reading all this sort of, um, you know, like the more modern personal development authors and diving into their philosophy. And at the same time, I know you've also, you know, been reading, uh, you know, some of the, the, the great Indian sages and people from the East. How do you take all that and say, um, this is what I believe to be true? Like, this is what I, this is what I now choose to turn around and offer as my lens where I've got something of value. And also when you land in a place yeah. where you're, it, you know, in your own words, it is very populated by people with a lot of things to say. How do you show up and say something that rises, that, that is distinct? How I, and, and I'll say it's more populated now also, because even when I started teaching really intensely coaching 15 years ago yeah. it wasn't as populated i mean let me tell yeah, you it was still more fringy then it and was, now it's kind now, of mainstream. now yeah. everyone at starbucks is a coach and everyone yeah. at starbucks is doing seminars and everyone you know everyone everywhere is 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 doing something now you know so it's it's changed and now with youtube and everyone's making videos it wasn't like that 15 years ago for me yes there was a lot of different ideas because i've read so many books and had so many experiences but the real shift happened. It wasn't me thinking, how do I take all these things and create something unique? What happened for me was going through my own breakdown and my own unraveling and my own dismantling and my own um, crisis, so to speak, you know, and and questioning everything about about myself and going through my own inner transformation of peeling away my layers and conditionings and belief systems and having to drop literally everything I, I thought I believed and everything I was taught and 
it was through a process of, I think, sitting in a room for four or five months and journaling and crying and dealing with my pain, uh, the pain that I didn't even know I had around my father, you know, and, and dealing with my own wounding and unraveling the layers that I had built up uh, and then traveling, you know. That's when I really started to reconnect with my own truth. It wasn't by saying, how can I put these things together? It was more by peeling away layers. Yeah, it's liberation. Yeah, it was, it was really peeling away yeah. layers, you know, peeling away layers and crying and explore, exploring and forgiving and letting and shedding and shedding and shedding and shedding that what remained wasn't necessarily a whole bunch of ideas and teachings and concepts and things I'd read and I had to kind of let go of everything I knew, everything I read, every everything I'd been told and let it all go. And what was left, honestly, wasn't a whole lot of stuff in the mind. What was left for me, and I, it was really kind of complete itself when I was in India, what was left for me was an inner sense of freedom. What was left for me was in a sense of of lightness and in a sense of being in touch with something that wasn't teaching, it wasn't concepts, it wasn't like philosophies and frameworks. It was just, I feel fucking free. I feel alive. I feel, I just feel myself. It wasn't like seven steps to this, 18 this, 47. It was, so it was out of that freedom that I then felt like and moved to ask myself, how do I have more people? How do I have people experience what I feel? Right, because there wasn't sort of a teachable it, you know, process. It, it, it for wasn't you. a teachable, here are eight steps. It wasn't information that I just read in a book because I had to let all of that go. Because I realized information by itself is didn't really right. free me, you know. So, so, so it was out of that inner experience that the the impulse and the desire to to help people re you could, you could say re arose if that's a word, you yeah. know, kind of. So then, how do you, how do you take people there then? Because if you get to this place through years of um, some pretty major stresses, pretty major shifts in your yeah. life, and really intense journaling and study and then travel. Um, um, and it just sort of emerges that there is this, you've reached a point where there's a stripping away yeah. um, and all of a sudden you feel I felt this that. way. And at the same time, you know, the question in your mind sounds like has always been like the seed planted in you in a very young age is, is how do I, how do I share this with others? Um, how, how do you, how do you turn around and then say, okay, this is how I want everybody to feel. Get, like, this is the feeling. This is it. Yeah. Like, this this is this is aliveness. And how do I bring others <clears throat> along with me when I don't quite understand how I got here myself? Yeah, I just, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an, a concept and I give you kind of what happened. What yeah. happened was people started show. Literally, what happened for me was people started showing up and said and saying, "You seem really happy," mm. like. What's go, what, like? What's going on? How 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 did you you know? How did you get here? And that led to a conversation, which led to a deeper conversation, which led to maybe I'll formalize it in some way and and kind of share with people and start engaging, which which you could call looking back some form of coaching, you know, or or what I call uncoaching, 
in some way. And, and that's it. And, and honestly, it evolved. It just evolved from one conversation to a deeper exploration to, well, what if I try this and explored that? And we tried this and one day, half day. And it just was an ev- evolution. It wasn't like a thing I created. So it just evolved. You know, and for me, you know, part of, I share this in my book, but I think when we're born, you know, we're born free. I think when we're born as children, we're born in touch with our essence. You know, you look at a child. I think a child will just spend time in London with 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 a friend's kid, and you look at a child. A child will just jump on the table and sing and express itself. It doesn't care if it's not Adele or Bruno Mars or just sings. You know, it falls down, it cries, it poops. It's not like oh, we're ashamed. I. Po-. It just it's just being. You know, it's just in touch with that constant stream of aliveness. Right? It's not like oh, I'm naked or what do you think? It's just, a child will run up to you and doesn't think. Who is this guy? Is it, it, it just hug you? We're just, it's just what it is, you know? It's just being lived constantly. But I think what happens is slowly over time, we, we get conditioned. I think two things happen. Firstly, maybe dealing with our environment, our parents, life, divorce, society, pain, abuse, being abandoned. We start learning all sorts of mechanisms as a way to disconnect, as a way to ultimately not feel the pain of our situation most of which is unconscious. You know, so we start learning all sorts of mechanisms to disconnect from the pain of what's going on and we start shutting down and suppressing uh, certain feelings and we start st- stuffing certain things inside of ourselves and then those layers build up. But also we start learning a way of being in a sense of going into the world of who do I need to be in order for you to love me? You know, who, who do I need to be in order for my dad to love me? I'll be, I'll be the... Uh, the good boy, I'll be the, the perfect son, I'll be the, the, the responsible one. So we start developing a persona. You know, right. We start developing yeah, and a who, And who am I making wrong by doing this? Like which right. parent am I making? Right. Um, right. Yeah, it's really interesting. There, Two thoughts popped into my mind as you're sharing that. I'll share the second one first. Um, self-awareness is this really interesting thing. Like as a general, like when you're really little, the, the way you describe, you don't have this real sense of self-consciousness or self-awareness. Yeah. You just you just are. And self-awareness starts to drop into us at a certain age. And it's, it's this double-edged sword because on the one hand, you start to gain more of an ability to be intentional in the way that you bring yourself to the world. But on the other hand, you start to be more concerned about how other people are perceiving you exactly. in the world. And most of us... We don't deepen into that. We don't explore it a whole lot. And it becomes, you know, rather than rather than leaning into the intentional side, like mm. and, and treating it as a moment of agency, we treat it as a moment of constraint. Mm. And we never move out of that because mm. we never test those constraints for the rest of our lives. Mm. It's one thing that was coming to me. The other is um there's the way that you described people just started coming up to you and being like, dude. Why are you so happy? Yeah, it's so fascinating because I've now seen this in the lives of so many people um, who are uh, spiritual teachers or just entrepreneurs or makers, creators in some context of their lives. We become so obsessed with how do we build a community, how do we build a business, how do we build a brand, how do we build whatever it may be. What are the external tools that we can get? How do I become a great marketer? Outside in. Right. Rather Outside than in. saying, no, how do I become so deeply rooted in my truth, in my beliefs? How do I match? How do I like fiercely align um, my actions with my essence? Because when you do that, I've just seen there's something that happens in you 
that you become a beacon and you start to radiate something that's so distinct in the world Mm. that people just become attracted to it. Mm. Um, This is where, like, I'm generally a really practical person, you know, but this is the place where I've seen this happen so many times Mm. and we overlook it because we want to bolt on the mechanisms for growth rather than just do the work internally. And, and want, I know this we, is something you talk about. We want to hack it. Yeah. You know, want, you know and I say you, you, can't, can't, ha- you, you can't. can't hack authenticity. Yeah. You can act it. You can adopt it. You can walk it. You can talk it. But that doesn't mean you have really done the inner physical, spiritual, emotional work to actually rest into that dimension of your being to unravel the layers of conditioning so you can really rest there. There's one way you can rest there in your authenticity or you can like adopt it as a thing to do, but you can feel it, you know? Yeah, I agree. And and I think it's so distinct in the world today that when people people come into the orbit of somebody who's living from that place, Mm -hmm. they just, they want it. Like people would come up to you, they just kind of want to know how are you this way and how can I in yeah. some way participate in this? And, and that's why for me the work in the beginning was was honestly an organic evolution. Yeah. There was no grand marketing plan and there was uh, internet this. or It was just I want to help people. That was the pure desire. I want to help. I want people to feel how I feel. And, and, and people started coming and one person led to the next. And obviously the process and the way I work with people has refined itself and, and become a little more streamlined and effective. But it started from the pure, the pure desire to inspire people to reconnect with what I felt, mm. you know. And it wasn't necessarily I'm going to make people into what I am. It was just I want to reconnect people to that source within themselves so that they can find out their own truth, find out what they are because – feels amazing to me. And that was the that's for me the foundation of, you know, even everything I do now, you know, yeah. arising from that pure desire. So so talking about what you do now, you know, you have since then over a period of years um, continued to build and build and build and now in a, probably an interesting way you could kind of say like you've built your own version of what your dad had built. <laughs> I guess you could say that. I've never, you know, because you know. you're out there, you've got, you know, books, you know, media, organizations, gatherings, events, yeah. trainings. Um, it's different format. Yeah, very different. For, like you've, you've, and which is interesting because you're one big beef when we started the conversation with what was going on like as a childhood was not so much with the fact that, less, yes, I'm in touch with the mystical side of things. It yeah. was the delivery mechanism. It yeah. was the... It was all the trappings of how this was like how this was moving from you to those yeah. who you sought to touch, and it seems like what you've done is you've now basically recreated that on your own terms. Yeah, yeah. I think I've just done it in a in a way that's more accessible for the newer generation, the modern generation, and for you. Yeah, and for me. Yeah, more in alignment with with who I am. Yeah, know, and my truth. So it feels feels good. You know, feels I feel aligned with how it's evolved. But I think, you know, I look back at my father and I think the essence, you know, of where we come from is really similar. Yeah. And the essence of where we come from is still that transmission of love, of consciousness is, is the same, you know. But I think every person has to find their own path and every person has to find their own truth. Every person has to find their own deepest expression of how life itself is seeking to express through us. I believe life itself, life is seeking to express through us. And I think the more we can get ourselves out of the way and actually simply open ourselves to being used 
as vessels and vehicles for consciousness, for life, for this intelligence, whatever you want to call it. To me, the same intelligence that's living and breathing me, you, seven billion people, the sun, the moon, the stars, you know, the ants, the, the fish, everything. The more we can, I think, get ourselves out of the way and allow this intelligence to move through us, uh, I think the more we will be in the flow, uh, the more life will unfold, the more miracles happen, mm -hmm. the, more, the more we are able to fulfill uh, what we're meant to do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll get behind that. So feels like a good time to come full circle. Um, so the name of this is Good Life Project. So yeah. if I offer that, that phrase out to you, to live a good life, what comes up? Wow. Um, I think to live a good life is um, loving fully. You know, I think at the end of the day, we will all die. Uh, at the end of the day, whether you're Muhammad Ali, Bruce Lee, David Bowie, Bob Marley, Martin Luther King, whoever, we will all, our life will come to an end. And so for me, it's not the quantity of one's life or how long one's lives, but it's, it's how we live. And I think how we live is really determined by the degree to which we love and the loving fully. And that's the first thing I'll say is really, you know, how, how much are we loving? And uh, the second thing is, I think, the degree to which we are being ourselves and the degree to which we are learning the lessons, the unique lessons for which our souls have perhaps been put on this planet to, to experience and learn. Because I think at the end of our lives, uh, we take nothing with us. Uh, no car, no home, no iPhone, no nothing. You know, we take nothing, no clothes. We don't even take this body with us. So I think part of living a good life is, is, is truly evolving and uh, learning the lessons for which we are, we are we're born. We're born for. So that's part of it. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If the stories and ideas in any way moved you, I would so appreciate if you would take just a few extra seconds for two quick things. One, if it's touched you in some way, if there's some idea or moment in the story or in the conversation that you really feel like you would share with somebody else, that it would make a difference in somebody else's life. Take a moment and whatever app you're using, just share this episode with somebody who you think it'll make a difference for. Email it if that's the easiest thing, whatever is easiest for you. And then, of course, if you're compelled, subscribe so that you can stay a part of this continuing experience. My greatest hope with this podcast is not just to produce moments um, and share stories and ideas that impact one person listening, but to let it create a conversation, to let it serve as a catalyst for the elevation of all of us together, collectively, because that's how we rise. When stories and ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change happens. And I would love to invite you to participate on that level. Thank you so much, as always, for your intention, for your attention, for your heart. And um, I wish you only the best. I'm Jonathan Fields, signing off for Good Life Project. <laughs>